0: Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers Podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Tony here. If you've been enjoying One Step Beyond, and especially if you enjoy the fact we don't have ads running through it, please consider dropping something in the tip jar. Think of when you encounter a busker. Do you like what you hear? you put some loose change in the hat and you go about your day knowing that you're doing your own little part to encourage creativity. Just look for the support this show link on whatever app you're using to listen along or visit supporter.acast.com forward slash one step beyond. Thank you. And now on with the show. Hey, you. And welcome to episode 26 of One Step Beyond, a show all about positively engaging with the world outside our door. My name is Tony Fletcher. I hope you all enjoyed episode 25, the anniversary episode, as I called it, in which we revisited some of our previous conversations and caught up with some of our prior guests. For this episode, we're going to revisit India in the form of another short story I wrote about our travels backpacking around the world with then-wife and then-11-year-old son in 2016 for 10 and a half months. It's the third of these short stories to make this show, and this one is called You Do Not Need a Guide. It's been on my mind to read this short story for a while now, but I've been pushed to move it up the timeline of late because of the Covid crisis convulsing India at this very moment. You may have seen the TV images or still photographs of people rushing loved ones from hospital to hospital in search of oxygen only for their father, mother, son, daughter, sister, brother, whoever it may be to die in the backseat of a car after being turned away from one location after another, due to a lack of beds, ore and oxygen. You may have seen pictures of cricket grounds in public parks being turned into emergency crematoriums. And you may be wondering how a country that appeared to have COVID all but defeated as recently as January now has upwards of 350,000 new cases a day, where official death figures of 2,000 a day are considered perhaps only a tenth of the actual figure given the number of people who don't have access to health care and who have likely been cremated before anyone can accurately ascertain their cause of death. Now, it would be easy for anyone who doesn't know India to figure that this is just what happens when the most populous country in the world catches a collective virus. And it's true that much of India is stricken by poverty, living on less than $2 a day, without access to advanced health care. But still, that is only a part of the picture – a part that is often sold to us consciously or otherwise by a mass media that still wants to convince us that India is at best a developing country. Truth is that India has history that puts a lot of the rest of the world to absolute shame and it's full of incredibly intelligent, vivacious, friendly, gregarious, really lovely people who have demonstrated at home over the millennia and in other countries in more recent decades, to be some of the smartest brains in science and medicine and technology and art and culture and sport and so many other areas besides. And large areas of the country are perfectly modern. New Yorkers and Londoners alike would weep in envy at the airport and the subway system in Kolkata, for example. This makes it ever more of a tragedy that the country did not learn by earlier mistakes made by the USA, the UK and other countries and opened right back up again at the end of this winter as suddenly as it had locked down in the first place. Going ahead with a massive Hindu festival that brought millions of people together and also going ahead with the in-person campaigning on the election trail. I was actually in the state of West Bengal five years ago this month when the elections there were last taking place. These are state elections by the way. I remember them well because the campaigning took over the town we were staying in, Kalimpong, and then literally took over the transportation so that we couldn't get out of there, commandeering every last jeep so that ballot boxes and election observers could be delivered to all the rural outposts. You see, unlike some other countries I could name, India actually wants people to vote. And it has laws maintaining that people must have a maximum distance to travel to a ballot box. And so the state elections, at least in West Bengal, are staggered across different parts of the state, and for a week at a time. Sure, voting took a solid month in all, but 55 out of 66 million registered voters in that state cast a ballot, well over 80%. The same in Kerala, at the other end of the country, where final turnout was 77%, and where the Communist Party got the most votes, again. Kerala has a literacy rate of 96.2%, by the way draw whatever conclusions you want. The USA certainly learned how hard it is to hold an election in the middle of a pandemic. But India, in turn, had the tools to learn from the USA. It certainly has the bureaucracy. I would say it's probably the most bureaucratic country in the world, certainly the most bureaucratic I've visited, and it could have reopened in stages, as other countries are doing. And if it doesn't have the health infrastructure most countries would aspire to, then all the more reason for national leaders to listen to the scientists and doctors and launch a massive vaccination programme, rather than allow complacency and scepticism to hold vaccination numbers even now under a shockingly low 2%, when India is in fact the largest producer of vaccines in the world. It has the bureaucracy to issue mask mandates and to open the faucets of quote normality but slowly. What it doesn't have is the ability to change people's habits overnight, and India is an incredibly tactile country where people are used to physical contact, to being in crowds, to living cheek by jowl. This is true certainly of Calcutta, which I'd say is the most fascinating city I've ever visited. A place I fell so much in love with that we used it as a base in northern India, staying at the same location in that city four times in all as we traveled from there to different parts of the region of northeastern India and Nepal. Kolkata has a remarkable if not especially lengthy history given that it was built by the British over a swamp as their original capital of empire but like all of India it has remarkable energy and a truly remarkable mixture of old or oldish I guess and new. Quite a lot of that old was captured in photographs taken by Finn Riley a fellow Brit expat in the Woodstock area who helped convince me to go there in the first place and who then kindly hired me to write the introduction to the book of beautiful, mostly black and white photographs that he published a couple of years back. That book is called Calcutta, Calcutta, which is the new and old spelling of the city's name. And it is, I guess, my one lasting, however minor, cultural contribution regarding the country thus far. This short story then is going to be the next, and it's set in an entirely different part of the country, It recounts just one of the many dozens of wonderful adventures I had in India, a country I really, really cannot wait to revisit, even as I will obviously have to. And I hope this story will serve to give you an insight into a different aspect of the country than that which you're often bombarded with in the news. I'll put links in the show notes to some of what you've heard me discuss so far and some of what I'm about to discuss in the story itself. And I will see you on the other side. So, lace up your hiking shoes and prepare to go on a journey with me, as we venture. One step beyond! Without a guide, you'll still reach your destination. It just may not be the destination you were seeking. So says Suresh, when I ask him whether we will need a guide for the trek to Mount Tadiandamal a popular day hike from his Honey Valley homestay estate in the Korg Mountains of Karnataka. I should, perhaps, have known to expect such a zen-like, Confucius answer from him. This is, after all, the man who responded to my question over the phone a few days earlier as to whether we could pay by credit card for our stay, with the none-too-assuring assurance that, if the credit card machine works, my friend, it works. There is no disputing such logic, even if it is not the logic you are seeking. Tadiandamol is not much of an actual climb. At 5,735 feet or 1,750 meters above sea level, it's only 1,500 feet higher than Honey Valley itself. But it's several peaks further along the ridge, and after our frustrating time in Chefchaouen, Morocco, where we had failed to ascend Jebel El Kala despite the fact that the town was literally built into the peak's bosom, I tell Suresh to book us a guide regardless. And now it's 36 hours later, and as the mostly Indian inhabitants of the busy dining room settle into a typically robust southern Indian vegetarian breakfast of Italy's fruit, potatoes and samosas, I ask Suresh where I can find my man. Oh, you do not need a guide, he says offhandedly as if that was always the plan. It will take away all the fun for you. It takes me a while, by which I mean much later into the day, to understand Suresh's refusal to honour his guest's request. Yesterday, ostensibly our rest day at Honey Valley, I'd gone running, acclimatising myself to my surroundings as I like to do, and in the process I'd come across Suresh, going about his own daily perambulations, conveniently meeting him at the lone junction of the lightly wooded hillside, from which paths angled off in multiple different unmarked directions, "'one of them up the hill and on towards Tadiandamor. "'You are fit, my friend,' Suresh had beamed upon seeing me, "'as if he and I were members of a secret society. "'And you are happy. "'Always happy running trails in a new land,' I responded. "'I asked about the swimming hole on his property. "'Was it worth seeking out?' "'The swimming hole is fine,' he responded, "'as long as you're not going there for the swimming.' "'I headed there anyway.' "'Suresh conveniently pointed me on the correct path.' And he was right. It wasn't much for swimming, but the waterfall was delightful. I brought my son and wife there later in the day. Our brief encounter must have provided Suresh with the evidence he felt he needed to decide that my request for a guide was in fact unwarranted. These people, he says now, this Saturday morning, gesturing across the dining hall to the large group of visitors from nearby Bangalore to the rest of the world the tech capital of India, which is to the Korg Mountains what New York City is to the Catskills. These people need a guide. Indians have forgotten how to walk. Everywhere they take a taxi, they take a bus, they take a train. They have no idea how to use their legs. By Indians, he is not, I figure, talking of the vast majority of the population, those who have no money at all, let alone any for taxis. He's talking of his homestay guests this increasingly large, educated and financially comfortable middle class of Indians who don't walk anywhere anymore for the simple reason that they can afford not to. On its website, Suresh pitches Honey Valley, now largely converted to a coffee plantation, as a necessary escape from this lifestyle of mechanical and technological convenience. To live in harmony with nature is part of our culture, he states of the Korg people. And it is true. There is no television at Honey Valley, no modern conveniences, and even a request for no alcohol. Rather undone by the fact that Suresh sells beer on request nonetheless, and most of his guests seem to drink it regardless. Instead, there is great food, all of it vegetarian as customary in the southern half of India, comfortable rustic accommodation, and miles of flora, fauna, birds, animals, mountains, forest, and vast open spaces. So, I do appreciate that Suresh has faith in me. It's just that after our Chef Sharon debacle, I can only hope my wife and son share it. There being no such thing as official trail maps, because there's no such thing as official trails out there either, I borrow a self printed guide compiled by a former repeat guest. It's well-meaning but extensive and complicated, demanding attention to landmarks like the second tree on the left, along with strange reassurances that if you find yourself in a forest of thorns, you're going the right way, indicating that Suresh's personality rubs off on his visitors. Suresh warns me that the dog-eared pamphlet is several years old and not desperately reliable to begin with, And so, I have us set off at a comfortable distance behind a dozen or so Bangaloreans, their guide and the guide's dog. I figure we will simply follow in their footsteps. Suresh sets off with us, ostensibly to point us to the appropriate initial path, though I suspect he has sensed my intentions and is secretly plotting to delay us. Sure enough, he leads us but leisurely up and over the initial hill, from which we can see Tadiandamon in the distance, several peaks away over a widely ranging topography, from barren hilltops to dense forestation, all of it under a moderately cloudy sky and a reasonable humid haze. Suresh gets to talking about dinosaurs and how they once roamed this very land. I am not going to argue whether God made the earth and all the animals, he says. Not that I'd suggested anything either way. But this I will say. Man made religion. And with that final pearl of wisdom, he sets off back to base to check on the coffee beans roasting in the sun. And we set off in the opposite direction towards the boisterous young Indians who, being young and boisterous, are full of energy and have already scaled the hill ahead. Noel is wearing my old Crystal Palace team shirt today and what we call a Lawrence of Arabia cap, one that protects the neck. And his waist pack has such a bulge that it appears to be carrying not just his packed lunch but perhaps all of tomorrow's food too. I'm wearing a technical tee and like Noel a Lawrence of Arabia cap and shorts. Posey, as usual, is in long pants and a long-sleeved technical shirt as if winter might roll in at any moment. The day initially unfolds mildly like the one on Jebel El Kala, a continent a couple of months back. We know where the summit is and we can even see it at times, but reaching it requires the navigation of multiple obstacles and hurdles. Still, unlike that day, no one emerges from behind a boulder to sell us weed, the temperature is manageable, and the walk involves undulation as opposed to a steep climb. Still, the Bangaloreans remain forever a hill ahead, leaving me increasingly reliant on the self-printed pamphlet. At one point we do find ourselves in a forest of Well, if not exactly thorns, then flowers whose buds insist on sticking to us. They don't sting, but attempts to brush the prickly fruits off our clothes only seem to embed them further. We're soon counting dozens on each other's butts alone. We soldier on good-naturedly until eventually we emerge from the forest of thorns and the view opens up before us. From here we can follow the ridge down into a valley, after which it's a straight shot up Taddeanamore itself. When we hit that valley, we find ourselves suddenly in foot traffic. All around us are Indians, many of them with the distinct skin colour and facial features that mark them as Korgs. Some are ascending alongside us, full of smiles. Others are descending already, no less effusive in their greetings. Several insist we stop where we are, at which they whip out their phone cameras, position themselves alongside us, hand off the camera to a partner, usually the female in the group and pose for a picture alongside us white people, without as much as a request for our consent. I learn now from exchanges in Pigeon English that there's an official entrance to this climb further down the valley, accessible by road, and judging by the speed at which the locals are walking, it's not far away either. Only the hardy guests of Honey Valley, perhaps one might say only the foolhardy, opt for the unmarked trek across the multiple hills. But to this end it's much like the Catskills. One can take the straight shot up Overlook Mountain from the village of Woodstock or one can reach Overlook Mountain from Platte Clove, several peaks and considerably more miles away. There is no right or wrong, only your destination, perhaps even the one you are seeking. It's hard to know how many miles we hike, but several hours in the open air soon takes its toll On the Bangaloreans who are paying for their initial enthusiasm and slowing down accordingly. And on my wife, too. She suggests we stop for lunch. I suggest we push on for what I figure to be the final hour and have our lunch atop of Tandiyanamal instead. A victory picnic, if you like. She promptly suggests that I go on without Uh. her. Noel, red though his face may be from the exertion and the sun that has seeped through the haze, is equally game to continue. By unanimous vote, we leave his mother to a boiled egg lunch, and he and I march on. The final ascent takes us through a half mile or so of steep, dense forest, the first and last trail of the day that even vaguely reminds me of the Catskills. Along the way, we pick off one or two of the Bangaloreans. As the forest opens up once more to barren grassland, and with loose dirt for footing, we then catch up with the bulk of them. I find myself drawn to and quickly engrossed in conversation with the group's de facto leader, a prematurely balding young man by the name of Rajid, who exudes typical Indian familiarity and warmth, and unusual levels of fitness. He's the first Indian I've met to have run a marathon. There's one takes place every year in Delhi, and he did it last year. Wow, that must have been hot, I suggest. Oh yes, he replies, but, he adds with a smile, I was trained. This is more than can be said for the majority of his group who are huff and puff to keep up with him and their guide, and myself and Noel, as together we reach Hadyandamal's jagged summit, which protrudes upwards and outwards over the valley. The guide's dog walks to the very precipice, gazing into the distance as if Simba surveying his kingdom. Cell service being a given across India photographs of him will be on multiple Instagram accounts within minutes. One by one the other Bangaloreans emerge from the forest to join us. A rather attractive young lady amongst them looks at me with something less than bedroom eyes. I passed your lovely wife just now. Why did you leave her behind? Fortunately before I have to answer another pair of figures emerge and I immediately recognize the gait of said wife who is keeping company with one of the Bangalorean stragglers. When they reach the top, my other half looks by far the fresher of the pair. She is also by far the oldest woman on the peak. Suresh, it would seem, has proved his point. By and large, Indians have forgotten to walk. This might explain why our Bangalorean friends have a couple of jeeps booked to pick them up at the foot of the official path. They don't offer us a ride, and nor do we ask, Instead, Rajid and I pose for each other's cameras on the Taddy summit. Then his group sets off at a suitably refreshed pace back down the hill, and my family's brood strolls more leisurely behind them. My pamphlet has a route home through the lowlands that it assures us is a shortcut. And if the pamphlet was not perfect in its guidance for the journey outward, nor did it send us astray. So, we have a plan, too. The clouds have pretty much consumed the sky by now, and although it's not uncomfortably hot, it is humid. As a result, we are pounding our way through our supplies. By the time we reach the entrance gate, Posey, if not Noel too, is thoroughly exhausted. She asks if we can scratch the shortcut back to Honey Valley and call for a vehicle instead. So I do. I reach Suresh's son, who runs the more upscale second hotel on the property, Chingara. He's the one that drove down by Jeep to meet us when we arrived a couple of nights ago by bus. Another story all in itself. He informs me now, matter-of-factly, that all his Jeeps are out for the time being. Maybe I should have reserved one earlier? I decide against taking his father's name in vain and we meander down the hill, a further two miles of steep descent navigable only by Jeep. We know as much because they are the only vehicles that come whizzing past us. Posy sticks out her thumb every time she hears one, but none of them stop. It's an attractive walk though, with coffee, orange and cardamom plantations all around us. Other than being worn out, what's not to love about the day? Eventually we reach the village and the main road, where we find a car park full of waiting minivans and cars. I call Suresh's son again, and he tells me a vehicle will not be free for at least 40 minutes, maybe an hour. Posey, Noel and I confer. My pamphlet suggests it should be little more than an hour's walk back to Honey Valley via the rural shortcuts. We have food and water. Well, we still have some water. We've worked our way through our food rations and Posey is unwilling to trust the local stalls and their fresh fruit and vegetables for reasons I can't fully comprehend. Without the clear prospect of an imminent ride, we make a decision to continue on foot. How bad can it be? One hour later, we find ourselves shouting at each other furiously from separate stepping stones in the middle of a densely wooded creek. We have walked down a couple of roads, doubled back on ourselves after realising we'd gone past our turning, finally followed one of the pamphlet's markers to a side road, spotted the entrance into some woods, crawled through a hole in a wire fence that was, with bizarre accuracy, actually included in the pamphlet's instructions, hole and all ducked into the woods and followed our way along the side of a small creek which we now only have to cross so the pamphlet assures us to gain access to the rice fields on the other side. And then all we need to do is cross those paddy fields and a couple more beyond to find ourselves back at Honey Valley. The pamphlet makes it sound easy. I am not so sure. For one thing, there is fencing in every direction on the far side of the creek. I know as much because I have just returned from performing reconnaissance. For another, the very notion of walking across rice fields rather fills me with dread. And for extra measure, the day is only so long and we are well into its final quarter. I can envision us two hours from now, knee deep in rice and mud, the sun long having set, our phone batteries dead or drowned, our waste packs and backpacks emptied of food and water, and Suresh, to the extent he may be noticing our absence in the dining hall at all, no doubt putting it down to our having found another destination. Guys, I say, hopping back to my designated stepping stone, it's time to admit defeat. We're not doing this. Let's head back to the main road and call for a jeep. We'll just have to wait it out. A part of me, admittedly not the most humble part, hopes to receive some gratitude for recognising the danger and cutting our losses. Instead, my wife starts crying. Exhaustion overtook her a while back, it's just run headlong into frustration and thirst and hunger have decided to add themselves to the mix too. Noel looks at her, looks at me, seems to recall that he abandoned his mother on the final ascent to the Tadiandamol Peak and that maybe he should even things out, and starts crying too. I quite fancy joining them, to be honest. Instead, I enjoy the inevitable, if only we'd insisted Suresh's son send a jeep an hour ago, we'd have been home by now, in silence. They are right. Which does not mean we were wrong to push on. It just means we're smart enough to turn back. We finally find our way to the main road, the others drying their tears of frustration along the way. I call Suresh's son for a third time, tell him to send a vehicle the moment that he can, like yesterday, because my wife and son are about to kill me, and he tells me to wait by the entrance to the primary school at the village. We trudge back up the hill to the school, and Posey and Noel sit themselves by the front entrance. Figuring they may want to vent further out of my earshot, I wander the school grounds, taking photos as I do. A Korg family is also exploring. When they see me, They appear utterly mesmerised, as if I am a wild and exotic animal that escaped a faraway zoo. One of the young men quickly lines me up alongside his family for a group photograph, and this time I insist on one with my camera too. We conduct our requests in sign language and native tongues. The photograph I'm handed back on my iPhone is delightful. On the left side are three young men in buttoned shirts and blue jeans. On the right side are three young women in colourful headdresses and gowns. Leaning against the women is a girl in white tunic, red pantaloons and sandals. She's too young for a compulsory headdress and her dark hair is parted on the right. Alongside her stands the smallest of the group, what I presume must be a young boy, more because he is conspicuously holding a baseball cap in his left hand than anything of gender indicated by cropped hair or traditional clothing. And then, in the middle of this large family group, standing over the tallest of them by a good couple of inches is yours truly. His white skin, bald head, backpack, shorts and compression socks marking him every bit the alien of the Korg's initial fascination. Other than the seductive gaze perfected by one of the two young women, I am the only one smiling. You would never have guessed that it was they who requested the photo. Before we can comment further on each other's strange dress and habits in native tongues and sign language, Noel comes running into the schoolyard to tell me the car is here already. We find Suresh's son at the wheel. In the absence of other vehicles, and having taken my sense of urgency to heart apparently, he has driven out himself to collect us. It is, as I'd suspected, a considerable drive home. Even a dry, shaded, marked path across the middle of the rice fields would likely have taken a couple of hours. I have never been more glad to have quit something in my life. As the others cheer up, I feel a sense of satisfaction wash over me. We made it to the top of Tadiandamal, and we will make it home again. We are all in one piece, and we will all make our peace. Back at Honey Valley, Suresh is overseeing preparation of the evening buffet. He smiles when he sees us. Ah, my friends, he beams, ignoring our sweaty faces, dirty clothes and general look of exhaustion. What did I tell you? A guide would have taken away all the fun. You Don't Need a Guide was written and read by Tony Fletcher. You can find more of his work at tonyfletcher.net The music underlying this story was Deep Karnataka by Dabraja Night in India by Shamil Elvenheim and Little India by LeCart Postal All downloaded from the Free Music Archive and used via a Creative Commons license. If you enjoyed this short travel story, look for others on previous episodes of One Step Beyond. One Step Beyond is written, produced, and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music is by Noel Fletcher, unless otherwise stated. The theme song is by Madness, used with permission. And the logo is by Mark Lerner. Special thanks to Radio Kingston for airing these episodes and for supplying studio space when not under lockdown. If you like what you hear, please consider throwing us a tip via the support this show button on your phone or by visiting supporter.acast.com one step beyond lowercase. You can also hit the subscribe button and or leave a positive rating and or review. It all helps. One Step Beyond is on social media, mainly on Instagram. Just search One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher there or on Facebook and Twitter, and we should come up straight away. To subscribe to a newsletter, to reach out via email, and especially if you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, the address is onestepbeyond at ijamming.net. One Step Beyond is available on just about every podcast platform known to man and most likely a few that have yet to be discovered. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay active.